How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation today with John Dickerson, who is a correspondent for 60 Minutes and also the author of a new book, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. John, welcome to our show. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. So, John, uh, you have a background in uh, politics in some respects. You grew up in Washington. You've been around the White House for some time, and now you work for uh, CBS uh, as a correspondent. How do you have time to write a book when you're a correspondent? Because it's not that easy to write a book. And this is a very comprehensive book about the presidency. So how did you actually have time to do this? Well, I started a long time ago and I got lucky at the end. So I started really, the the genesis of this book started in 2004 in the President uh, Bush's driveway, driveway in Crawford, Texas. I'd been there to interview him for Time Magazine. And he said, you know, if you want to know what a president does, ask anybody running for president how they make decisions. And what struck me at that time was the disconnect between what we talk about in campaigns and what the job actually requires. And then I wrote a series of articles for Slate Magazine about this set of questions. I wrote a cover story for The Atlantic. And when I was at Face the Nation, a lot of the times when I do interviews and special shows, I would talk to CEOs and other leaders about how they did the job. So I've been gathering the string on this for, you know, 16 years. So I should also tell people your background a bit. Uh, your mother, Nancy Dickerson, was the, the first female correspondent for a network. Is that correct? That's right. For CBS News. And uh, that was a time when all the correspondents were men otherwise. <laughs> they Yes, they were. I mean, it seems everybody, everybody was a man. I mean, she started on the Hill as a staffer for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and it, it basically, women on the Hill were basically clerks, they called them. They were secretaries. Um, she went from there to be a, a booker for CBS. And in fact, the very first show she worked on booking guests was Face the Nation when it started. Um, so when I uh, became host of Face the Nation, that was a nice circularity there. Um, She booked Joe McCarthy. She was from Wisconsin. He was from Wisconsin on that very first Face the Nation show in which he talked about the Senate lynch bee, he called it. And that was actually part of what initiated the censure in the Senate of of um, of the senator, because he basically said his colleagues were lynching him. And that was included in their charges uh, against him for his uh, for his poor conduct. Um, So. That was her. uh, And then she was a correspondent in Washington later for for NBC News and then for PBS. And at one point that was said that she had a date with somebody named John F. Kennedy when he was, uh, I guess, a congressman or maybe a senator. Uh, Did she ever tell you what that was like? Well, she was very strange. So one of the things I learned, I wrote a book about her life because um, she had me when she was 
uh, 42 years old. And so when she passed away at age 70, I had I had talked to her about her career, but you know, I was still in my 20s. Um, I hadn't interrogated her about things the way I would certainly now, but she left me everything she had, including her journals when she was six years old, all the way through elementary school and college and the rest. Um, and so I wrote a book about her life. And the dating that went on in the 50s uh, and 60s, she was dating constantly as a young woman in Washington. And so as I talked to her colleagues at the time, were all the other women. So it was hard to tell exactly what a date meant. Having said that, she went on a couple of dates uh, with the congressman. And then later, she finds herself in a lot of Kennedy biographies, having said um, that, that sex for Jack Kennedy was like having a cup of coffee. This has been repeated a lot um, from her, and I never had a chance to ask her about that quote, and I'm not quite sure where she uh, came up with that, but anyway, that's that she, she was friendly with him, and also, of course, when um, she was part of the Georgetown set at that time, and he was an Irish Catholic, she was an Irish Catholic, so her career sort of paralleled the rise of the Irish Catholic in Washington. So there were lots of dimensions of her, of her friendship and, and her relationship with Kennedy. So the basic premise of your book was that the presidency was uh, not an easy job for a long time ago, but it wasn't as hard as it is now. In fact, today, it's almost an impossible job because so many expectations are now descended upon the president. So is that essentially right? Right. And, and, you know, when I started working on the book, the idea was basically to go to the blueprint of the office, to, to tear the thing down to its studs and say, how was it built? Why was it built? And how has the mansion that is that the presidency is now gained all these strange new wings and it's got a cupola and all kinds of odd appendages to this building? Where did these all come from? And presidents have been complaining about uh, the presidency since the beginning. But what's happened is, of course, You've, you've seen Congress uh, shrink in size, which has increased the number of things on the presidential plate. And then, of course, the national security state after the Second World War. Well, the Second World War, Cold War, now War on Terror, has brought so much of the national security operation inside the White House, in addition to the ceremonial roles we ask of a president. And it's just blossomed all the things we ask a president to do and all those expectations we have of them. Uh, so yes, that's, uh, that's the essential thesis of the job with a little wrinkle, which is we ask presidents to do all these things, and then we have a hiring process for them that is disconnected from the actual attributes you need to do the job. You point out in your book that uh, I think it was uh, John Kennedy who said, well, I spent all my career trying to figure out how to get this job, but I never spent any time figuring out how to do the job. Is that essentially right? Exactly. And that goes to this, this thing I've discovered both in history, but then also in talking to uh, presidents. And President uh, Trump said a version of the same thing about the disconnect between what the job is and, and, and the way you talk about it, the way we talk about it in campaigns. Kennedy was one of the first, if not the first president, to kind of bring his campaign team in with him, um, which is a real tension in the job because people who have helped you get to the, through the campaign, they're loyal, you want to reward them. But most of the people who've studied good presidential management say maybe they're not the ones you bring in because they have a different skill set than, than is required for the job. So let's talk about the modern presidency. Let's, for the purposes of this discussion, let's begin with, let's say, Dwight Eisenhower. So when Dwight Eisenhower became president, and I would like to point out to people that are watching this, 
I was a young boy when he was president of the United States, and I thought, boy, he is an old, old man. He really is old. I was probably eight or nine or so, and I looked it up recently, and he was 62, a teenager <laughs> to the, today. He was only 62. He left the presidency when he was 70. So um, when he became president, he had been obviously a uh, Supreme Allied Commander, uh, President of Columbia, is used to being executive. How did he change the presidency or the White House? Did he expand it? Did he shrink it? What did he do? What I found in studying Eisenhower that I found so appealing about him is he thought a lot about how to manage different kinds of organizations. Uh, there's a wonderful letter he writes in which he breaks down why Patton is a great action commander, but would never be any good running anything. So that you would always have to have somebody above George Patton in order to use his skill, uh, but you, it would be just too chaotic if he were the top leader in an organization. So he thought a lot about how leadership should work and different ways in which leadership should work, which is amusing because, of course, there's a quote from Truman, who was no fan of Ike's, who said, you know, poor Ike, he's going to come into the presidency, he's going to tell people, go do this and go do that, and he's used to people answering orders and they won't do it. Of course, he had dealt with the bureaucracy of the army um, throughout his career, so he knew a lot about the sluggishness of the bureaucracy. Um, and. And what he brought to the White House was a sense of priorities, a sense of um, delegation, that he didn't have to be involved in every little thing. And he brought that kind of organizational discipline, um, and particularly in terms of prioritization, his quote, which has been repeated and turned into a kind of management uh, maxim, never let the urgent crowd out the important. And the idea was that you can always spend your day being barraged by the urgent matters of a presidency, but if you don't spend time on the important, you'll be overwhelmed soon enough. He more or less invented two things, I think, that we still have, which is a White House chief of staff that really hadn't been such a person before. And secondly, a White House national security advisor, because there really hadn't been one before like that. Is that right? Right. In part because um, the national security state really gets um, locked in place by Truman in the post-Second uh, World War, Cold War era. So you have, you have the national security state in, inside the White House or inside the executive branch now in a way that you didn't uh, in previous presidencies. But it also was a part of his view of, you know, you have a thing, you have a White House that is staffed up um, and, and that you people have their roles and you, um, and you assign them their roles and, and uh, you hold them to account. And it, it's sort of the way we run corporations now today. Um, and which is funny because Johnson and Kennedy, you would think, well, they would take the things that Ike knew and did and just improve on them. They ran their, their White Houses totally differently, far more improvisational than Eisenhower. So John Kennedy becomes president, as I mentioned earlier, at the age of 43. Hard to believe you could be president at that young. And um, he brings in lots of people who helped him in this campaign. But he comes up with an innovation, which is holding a, uh, I guess, every other week press conference where he actually fields questions that he doesn't know the, uh, what they're going to be in advance. Why was that such an innovation and why was it so popular? Well, it was, it was popular with everybody but the print reporters because they were furious that he was showing up on television. And this, of course, is this great clash in the, the history of American press where, um, and you see it in Ben Bradley's accounts with Kennedy and his conversations with Kennedy, that the, the print guys are irritated that he's using television as he did in the campaign, the first real glamour president. Um, and, and we have a lot perhaps to um, 
uh, admire about that, but also a lot of people would think it was the beginning of a lot of our current woes about turning the president into this mega celebrity. Other people start that uh, back at Teddy Roosevelt, but that's a bit of a diversion. So your point, though, is why was this important is because it allowed him to control the narrative, control the public um, conversation about his policies. And also he loved the give and take with reporters. Um, he, he, both print reporters and television reporters, lots of friends of his were reporters, not just Ben Bradley, but Charlie Bartlett. So uh, it's often said, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, that sometimes when a story would come out and he didn't like a story and he didn't know who leaked it, he would ask his press secretary, Pierre Salinger, to find out who leaked it. And Pierre would come back and say, well, Mr. President, you were the source. You did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he kind of thought he knew the press game. I mean, so he, he thought he knew the motivations of the individual members of the press. He thought he knew the internal um, uh, politics of each press organization and kind of felt like he was, at times, he would kind of pretend he was one of the boys um, but also that he could shape and manipulate this and was furious when he couldn't. And, um, you know, canceling subscriptions. If Hugh Seide told stories about how he would stop talking to Hugh, Hugh Seide of, of Time Magazine, who covered the, the Kennedy White House, Ben Bradley, uh, his conversations with Kennedy has a big block where they don't talk because Kennedy was so angry. And um, he didn't and, have a chief he, of staff. No, he didn't. He thought he could do it, which is one of the Great. We see this this mistake repeated both in the Johnson era, then with Carter, then with Ford, the, the kind of hub and spokes model of a White House where the president is the hub and, and President Trump ran his White House this way, too. The president is the hub and everybody comes in at the president. Kennedy wanted a more loose organization than, than what Eisenhower had. And that was overwhelming. And he ultimately, after the Bay of Pigs, essentially makes Bobby a kind of chief of staff. So for those who are young, they may not remember this, but in those days, there was no internet, there was no cable TV, there was no social media. So when you worried about the press, you only worried about the New York Times, Washington Post, more or less the next day, and 15 minutes of evening news. That was it. That's right. It was a, it was a much slower, I mean, I, so it's just a much more enjoyable time because everybody also knew at six o'clock, you were done for the day. What did Lyndon Johnson bring as an innovation to the White House? Uh, what did he do that was different than Kennedy? Well, he had that same improvisational feature. Of course, he had the added challenge of he had a lot of Kennedy holdovers. And so he had this very tense dance between the people he brought uh, and then those who were still there from the Kennedy administration. Um, what he brought, of course, was his relationships on the, on, on the Hill. Um, the big downside for, for Johnson, of course, was his ego, his, um, his incredibly thin skin, his desire to kind of dominate um, friends and foes alike, um, and his volcanic temper. And he brought a work ethic that was, you know, started at six in the morning and went till midnight. Um, so he brought a harder charging uh, White House, and he brought basically the legislative muscle uh, and relationships and constant working uh, that helped him turn uh, the President Kennedy's program into a martyr's cause by, you know, using the moment that he had and basically ramming through uh, the legislation. The downside, of course, was 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 his uh, inescapable uh, challenges with Vietnam, which were, uh, you know, that was a national security challenge, but also a result of his. Um, uh, his own kind of demons in terms of managing that issue. 
So Nixon is next to the president. What did he do to change the way the White House is run? He had a much more systematic way of doing it. Is that right? He sure did. They called it the, the corporate uh, presidency. And so he returns, and this makes perfect sense, of course, since he'd been vice president under Eisenhower. You have Eisenhower with a system, and then you have two improvisational presidents, and now you have Nixon, who brings in, it's, it's fascinating because he brings in H.R. Haldeman, who had been an advertising executive, and he brings him in for two reasons. One, because Haldeman was a systems um, expert, or he, he believed very much in setting up a way of doing things and sticking to it. And his memos about how you run a White House and the way in which you order information um, are, are incredibly powerful and have been really referred to by presidencies ever since, which is kind of funny, given the fact that the, the, the Nixon White House is the um, greatest example of a White House that went wrong. And one of the things that Haldeman obsessed about was what he called end runs. And an end run essentially is anybody who chooses to be improvisational um, outside of the structure, because while they think what they're doing is the greatest and most necessary thing, they don't know everything else that's going on in the White House. And so they clang against other people who are doing similar things or who have, who have other priorities. The biggest problem, though, is when the end runs were done by the president. And that's, of course, what ultimately happened with, with Watergate. But what Haldeman brought was this systemic way of doing things. Mitt Romney, when I interviewed him for the book, told me a story about his dad who went into the president, had a conversation. Nixon said, great, that's a great thing to do. Haldeman called him five minutes later and said, Mr. Secretary, I know the president just told you this, but he doesn't like to disappoint people. We're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it this way. And that's the way to go. Um, and that was that was kind of the way uh, the uh, the Nixon White House operated. How about Ford? What did President Ford do in the rel relatively limited time he was there? How did he change the White House? Well, he went back to the hub and spokes model. Um, he thought Nixon had been too regimented, too cut off from the White House staff and from his cabinet secretary. So he said, I'm going to um, be much more accessible. Um, and that collapsed, as it always does, because the president is busy and everybody can't have the ability to walk into the office. Dick Cheney, who was his, um, who was his chief of staff, learned this. And um, in fact, it was uh, such a, a um, uh, such an item of conversation inside the White House uh, under Ford. They gave Cheney when he when the um, uh, Ford administration was over. They gave him a wheel um, on a plaque with all of the spokes broken, but one of them. Um, and that, of course, the one spoke is the chief of staff to the president. Um, so Ford lowered the temperature in the White House, uh, sort of the whole building, but also sort of reaffirmed the need to have a, a, a chief of staff and, and an uh, orderly way of doing things. Now, I work in the White House with President Carter. What would you say he brought to the presidency or how did he change the White House? What struck me about Carter when I spent um, time studying him was a, he worked, started working on the transition before he'd even gotten the nomination, which is, which is uh, brilliant. And we should allow every candidate to do this because the transitions are so short. They're really, they're 70 some odd days between when uh, an election happens and the inauguration. And even though now it's congressionally mandated that, that candidates who get the party nomination work on their transition six months before the election, they don't have the full access to all the information they need. And also it seems still as a little bit hubristic to be working on your administration when you haven't even got the job yet. The problem is if you don't, you get absolutely overloaded with the task because you've got to hire 4,000 people, 1,500 of them uh, uh, have to be Senate confirmed. Um, and you're taking on an organizational chart that you basically have to start from scratch because every White House arranges itself differently. 
So President Carter had that smart innovation. The challenge, though, is the one I mentioned earlier with Kennedy. When you, when you task a group of people to come in and run your White House, the people who brought you to the dance, the ones who were involved in your campaign, say, no, no, we're going to be the ones in charge when we get to the White House. And there was a famous clash between those two groups, the, the campaign team winning out. But it was a smart innovation that just kind of failed. Second innovation that, was, that failed as well was the, the, the attempt at cabinet government. Um, which was a big, uh, booming theory in Washington at the time, in part as a result of the, the Nixon years. But the idea was give your cabinet secretaries lots of free reign, give them lots of power, let them do things. The problem is that um, once you push power outside the White House, the president gets blamed anyway. And you start having cabinet secretaries who are freelancing, creating their own news, which then splashes back on the president. And it's basically out of control. And so it sounds good in theory. It was very hard to do in practice. Jimmy Carter's successor was Ronald Reagan. Um, he served eight years. What innovation did he bring to the presidency? Two from Reagan that, that, that I, I found interesting when I was doing my work. One was that um, the minute he wins the presidency, he calls Jim Baker, who he would have every reason to not like. Baker had fought against him uh, on Ford's side in 1976, when Reagan and Ford ran against each other in the Republican primary, and they had a, a, a bitter battle to the end, and basically Baker helped Ford beat Reagan. Then Baker worked for George Herbert Walker Bush in his uh, race, race against Ronald Reagan. So he would have every reason not to like Jim Baker. He called him right away and said, I want you to come work for me as chief of staff. Why? Because Baker knew how to work in Washington. He knew, Reagan knew and even though he was coming to Washington as a revolutionary, the only way he would be able to do the things he wanted to do was if he had somebody who could help him work through the Washington system. That was a smart innovation. And then he had to he had to settle down a lot of his California core who thought, wait a minute, Jim Baker is not a revolutionary like us. Why are you bringing him inside? Um, the second thing Reagan did was something that was told to me by an Obama staffer. And he said, basically, when you worked for Ronald Reagan, you knew he wanted to cut taxes beat the communists, and shrink the size of government. If you never talked to Ronald Reagan again, you knew that's what your marching orders were. And that clear set of priorities that kind of always um, came through from President Reagan had an organizing benefit for all the people who worked for him. Lots of other presidents, President Obama, for example, had lots of ideas, was highly improvisational and, and knowledgeable about everything. But those who worked for him didn't necessarily have that three clear ideas in their head. So what about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush? What did he bring to the presidency that was novel or different? Well, he brought relationships, of course, with all of those foreign leaders and the benefits of um, knowing a lot about foreign policy and its, and its more subtle aspects. One of the things that I found in, in working on the book was, was Condoleezza Rice said, you know, you come to the White House and every president says, on day one, I will do this. And she said, on day one, they will not because they're absolutely overwhelmed by all the things that come in and all the things they learn about covert programs, about the handholding that's required to, to be commander in chief with foreign leaders and, and all of the just um, part of your agenda that's taken up by foreign policy, which isn't something that's very much discussed in presidential campaigns. George Herbert Walker Bush had all of that knowledge and it was the perfect thing to have when you're managing the end of the Cold War and so he brought not only those relationships, but an understanding of why they're important. And then when the wall fell, he brought something that nobody um, talks much about in campaigns, but he brought restraint. When the wall fell, he didn't do an end zone dance because he knew 
that would put Gorbachev in a tough spot. So he had a sense of restraint and a kind of fingertip feel for international relations. So I'll let the readers of your book figure out uh, about some of the subsequent presidents, what they did, because I want to uh, wrap up with two or three questions. If you could have your way and change the presidency to make it more manageable so people can do the job they're supposed to do without having to do so many other things, what would you do that would realistically change the presidency and make it more realistic job that somebody can do? I think I would try and change the expectations we have for the president. Um, and then I would force Congress to do more work again. I mean, part of the reason the presidency is overwhelmed is that Congress no longer does the work that it used to do. When Woodrow Wilson was writing about the presidency and Congress before he became president, he describes senators as kind of amusingly looking at the new president as amateurs, um, you know, who kind of come in, they breeze in and then they breeze out. But the, it was the senators who had the wisdom and had the institutional knowledge and, and therefore, and also represented a more diverse part of America. And therefore they were really the, the heavy weight of uh, American political life. That's of course changed dramatically. Um, so I would say too, I would say stop, we should stop focusing on the president as the only actor in American life, which would maybe get Congress to do more, but also it would, it would stop us from thinking of the presidency as a single person, it's an organization. And so if we think about the presidency as an organization, then we should think about how they pick who's their top person going to be and what, what's their theory of management. Um, so those are a few. As you know, I go rather into at some length in the book on all that. <laughs> so the cover of your book has a picture of Lyndon Johnson kind of leaning into the cabinet table, basically saying, oh, woe is me. This is a big challenge I have. Um, do you think that the, that the people who get this job actually age dramatically or just they're just aging normally we just happen to see them age or are they aging more rapidly than they otherwise would what do you think yeah, right because we're watching them every single day I, I think they age in the office um, uh, although President Trump didn't age in the in the physical way that you see the others the, the way in which they age maybe actually we can't see which is to say the psychological pressure of the presidency and I don't mean just how hard the job is I mean you can't take a walk you can't just go outside and take a walk anymore. You're, everybody wants a piece of something from you. You can't walk up Air Force One without everybody waving to you and expecting that you'll wave back. And if you don't wave back, somebody will write that you're, you know, you're upset that day. So I think they age psychologically, perhaps, maybe even more than they do physically. Okay, John, thank you. We'll leave it there. I wanna thank you very much. We've been in conversation with John Dickerson about his book, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.